How is it going, my friends? Are you guys doing well tonight? Yeah, some people are doing well. Some people are doing okay. Hey, who had fun at volleyball? Anyone just have the best time? Should we do those more often, you think? You think we should do those commonly? Yeah. I think we should just get the whole city and just do a giant volleyball night with everybody in the city. What do you guys think about that? Some of you are like, yeah, I don't care. What are you even talking about right now? Well, hey, it feels good to be here tonight with you all. And I want to begin tonight by introducing to you, if not one of the greatest inventions, at the very least, one of the greatest inventions of 2022, I'm going to have Ryan pull up the croc boot. Mmm. Have you guys seen this before? Have you guys seen this yet? I think this is the best thing to happen since shoes have existed. This is the Balenciaga Croc boot. Yeah, get a close-up on that bad boy. This is the Balenciaga Croc boot. It uh, released four months ago. It is a croc in a boot, and it goes up to about your knees, and you can rock those bad boys through Rio Grande, even though it's like a foot anyway. You can pull up to the function, and you say, yeah, I look like SpongeBob from episode three, season two of SpongeBob. Yeah, you could give it up for SpongeBob SquarePants as a fry cook. That's, a, that's some Gen Z right there. That's some Gen Z stuff. Oh, my goodness. This is the Balenciaga Croc boot. This retailed four months ago, and you could pick yourself up a pair for a small sum of $825. Yes. $825. You could be stunting like Kanye West in the Balenciaga Croc boot at Donda 2. Not only is this overpriced, if you're not really a footwear person, if you're not really into all that, uh, don't worry. We have something else for you. About six years ago, Supreme, the streetwear company, decided to do a collaboration with Home Depot or Lowe's, I don't know, and decided to drop this, a Supreme brick. Yeah. Supreme released this company, I mean, released this brick. If you're not aware, Supreme is a streetwear company. It's, like, really overhyped, really expensive. They released the brick for $40, which is already a lot for one brick. I can't imagine buying one brick for $40. But now, if you wanted to purchase the brick, it is $200 for one single brick with a Supreme logo on it. If you have time later, you can just Google people putting this up in their home. They just have a brick that they spent 40 bucks or $200 on for the sake of it. I say all this because I think it's just funny as people what is determined valuable. Like Balenciaga decided, hey, we got a croc boot we made for 20 bucks maybe somewhere off in China or Italy. You know what we're going to do? $825. I don't know. Even though croc is the greatest shoe company to ever exist. They still decided to price it at $825. And this brick is now $200, supposedly. I just think it's so fascinating how, as people, we're so accustomed almost. Like, you guys are not even shocked. You're like, yeah, $200 for a brick, bro? That's easy. I bought three of those. Come on, let's go. Resale game. I just think, as people, we're so accustomed to the superficialness, the superficiality of value. That for some reason this company decides because their name's on it, they can price it at whatever they like for however much they desire. And I mention this because tonight I want to communicate to you about one topic in specific, one topic in particular. I want to communicate to you tonight about purpose. I want to communicate about purpose tonight. If you're not aware, we're going through a vision series titled Centered on the Good News of Jesus. 
And in this series, we're just covering what we are as a ministry, as a gathering of young adults. And last week, I talked about belonging and friendship and what that looks like to have gospel-centered belonging. And this week, I decided to cover the first part of the phrase because the phrase of collective young adults is to help young adults through ministry find purpose, belonging, and friendship centered on the good news of Jesus. And I mentioned value and I mentioned these things that are valuable, quote-unquote, Because when you're talking about purpose, it's impossible to not consider value as well. Value is tied up in purpose. See, what your purpose is in life is dictated by what you value. For instance, if you are a mom, if you believe your purpose in life is to be a mom, I just hope for your sake and for your children's sake, you kind of value children, okay? That'd be kind of awkward as a mom if you don't value children and you think that's your purpose in life. If your purpose in life is to make a ton of money, if that's what you decide to be your purpose, you probably value hard work. You probably value entrepreneurship. You probably follow those entrepreneur accounts on Instagram that has, like, a dude with, like, way too crazy of a jawline and a, like, really tight suit walking really quickly and says, money always, women never, need Ferrari. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all, that was, like, that was my ad. Like, I know your algorithm. If you value, if, if your purpose in life, if you decide that your purpose in life is to be a teacher, if you're a good teacher, you're going to value education. You're going to value equipping the generation of tomorrow. Purpose and value are coincided, my friends. You cannot separate the two. But I find, as I look around in our cultural moment, as I have conversations with different individuals, that I, I sense for many of us, We've lost sight of our purpose. We've lost sight of purpose in our lives. If you're taking notes, that's what I want to title this conversation tonight. Lost sight, losing sight of purpose. Because I find that as time goes on for the secular realm and also for those inside the church, they've come to the conclusion that at some point they've lost sight of what their purpose is in life, even as followers of Jesus. And if you'll let me tonight, I want to communicate to you, what do you do when you want to communicate about purpose as a follower of Jesus to individuals, but you have a different value system than them? Because it's easy to share an opinion about what the purpose is of life when you and I value the same things. Would you agree? If you and I value similar things, we can almost come to a conclusion that we have similar purposes in life. But I find as followers of Jesus, we have a difficult time to communicate what it looks like to have Christ-centered purpose in someone's life when we differ entirely from the value system they share. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask that you turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. Because I find that in Acts 17, it's the best description and outline for what it looks like to communicate Christ-centered purpose to an individual when you have different value system entirely. And we're in Acts again, as we were last week, because I just feel like the Lord just kind of led me to this. If you're not aware of Acts while you're turning there, Acts, I kind of caught us up last week. You can feel free to give that message a listen. It's on the pod. But Acts is the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of what the actions are of followers of Jesus. And in Acts 17, we're caught up with this individual by the name of Paul, who used to be Saul, And Paul's story is wild, if you're not aware of it. Paul's story, I would argue, is one of the most intense changes in all of Scripture. Paul begins his story in the Bible 
as murdering Christians, bringing Christians before courts and getting them executed. He is the persecutor of persecutors. Even in Acts, he's recorded helping with the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. So the first mentioning of Paul, as we know him in scripture, isn't very positive. Then Paul is encountered by Jesus on the road. He repents of his ways. He repents of his lifestyle, and he turns to Jesus and decides to serve him. And I love Paul's life for this very specific reason. Paul is the greatest example that if you're still upright, if you're still breathing, Jesus can still get a hold of you and use you. Jesus can still get a hold of your life and use you for something good. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your past. Doesn't matter how much you think you've messed up. God's not finished with you yet. And I love the story of Paul because he totally exemplifies that. So let's begin in verse 18. Oh, let me catch you up to verse 18. Verse 18 is kind of crazy. We're introduced to these two philosophy groups in Athens, Greece. Paul's sitting around. He's looking at the city. He's in Athens. Athens at the time was like the L.A. or New York City. It's the center of culture. It's the center of philosophical thought as they knew it. It's the development of all of their culture at the time. It is the epicenter of anything they know. And Paul is sitting around the city seeing all these idols around the city, seeing all these idols constructed in different images, but isn't seeing an idol constructed in the image of God that these people entirely are ignorant of who Yahweh is. So driven in just sadness and just frustration, he begins conversations with people. He begins asking people most likely their stories. He begins asking people what they believe. He begins to have conversations about who Jesus is. And that catches us up to verse 18. It says this, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke, the author of Acts, puts this little footnote in. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Let's stop right there. See, if you want to be a follower of Jesus who is able to begin to communicate to individuals who share a different value system than you, you have to start in a few different ways. And, and the thing is this. You can never tell somebody what to think about their purpose. It's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. Many of you have probably sat through preachers and communicators trying to do the same thing to you, and you probably thought that wasn't a very good talk. Because most likely somebody stood on the stage and told you what to think, and it doesn't matter how much they screamed, doesn't matter how blue in the face they got, no matter how hard I may try, I could never tell you what to think about anything. For a little while, you may be convinced, but if somebody can tell you what to think about something, somebody can just as easily tell you what not to think about that same thing. No, no, no. When communicating purpose to individuals, you have to start with how to think about purpose. If you start with how to think about purpose and you start with that concept of how, you can begin to step into somebody's scenario and circumstance and begin to understand where they're at, what they're going through, and walk through that with them and drive them to the point of conclusion what their purpose is. And if you want to be like Paul, if you want to be a follower of Jesus who in these difficult, trying, hard times, if we want to be a ministry, a gathering who helps communicate purpose and teaches people how to think about their purpose, 
then we need to understand a few different concepts and a few different ways Paul communicates. The first thing is this. If you want to help somebody see Christ-centered purpose, even though they differ in a value system than you, you have to start with this. You have to start with finding common ground. You have to start with finding common ground. Anybody ever remember the principal's office? You can raise your hand. You're like, yeah, I'm a bad boy. I was in the principal's office all of middle school. I hated the principal's office. And when, it grow- when I was growing up, for some reason, my parents just put me in these schools where you had to wear a uniform. You know what I'm talking about? You remember uniforms? Who decided uniform colors? Okay, can we just touch on this real quick? White, beige, navy, maroon if you're a little crazy, if your school's a little whoa out there because the maroon's Christ's blood, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's all three colors of the Trinity. I don't understand. You guys know what I'm talking about with the uniforms? You had to wear a little button down. You had to wear a little polo. You know what I mean? As a kid growing up, I, I, from the day I was born, I was like, nobody's telling me how to dress. I'm dressing myself. So I remember kindergarten, preschool, I really cannot remember the specific time period. But I remember specifically being asked to wear those terrible old navy beige khakis. Yeah, I was told to wear those. This is the uniform, Nick. This is what you got to put on. I said, no. I'm going to put on some denim. I'm going to put on some black jeans, okay? That's what I'm going to do today. So I rocked up to school in my black jeans, and immediately, first little class, I get called out. I get brought to the principal's office. Principal's office sucks. For anyone that's been there, you go in there. They're sitting behind the desk. You go in. You go to sit down. You can have a seat right here. Okay. (laughs) Sit down. You're a child. You're just like... I don't know why I'm in here. I'm very hungry. I'm missing recess right now. And we're playing Foursquare. Y'all remember Foursquare? Mmm, yeah. Some of you raised correctly. Do you, does there four, do you guys know anything about this in New Mexico? You know what I'm talking about, Foursquare? Man, those are the days. You're sitting there. You're missing Foursquare. You're not able to eat your little fruit cup. You know what I mean? No juice box, no Capri Sun. Even though strawberry kiwi is the best flavor. You're sitting there principal sitting across the desk from you, just telling you all the terrible things you've done, telling you how much of a terrible person you are, how you should be wearing beige khakis, but now you're wearing jeans. Never forgiven for that. Yeah, I got to make up that. So I'm sitting here, and I'm just getting told by this principal that I have to wear beige khakis, and then my mom comes and drops me off beige khakis, and I have to change into beige khakis, and then I leave. During that whole interaction, I was told and talked at, never communicated with, For anyone in the principal's office, you've probably had a similar experience. You know, as a small child, an adult probably doesn't think, oh, we can have a very deep conversation. Nick, do you understand the intellectual depth of why you should have worn beige khakis instead of these jeans? Please explain to me through a philosophical equation on the whiteboard here kind of what this scenario has represented for you. No, no, no. They're going to tell you what to do, how to do it, and then, okay, move on with your life. I think in any scenario, circumstance, when somebody is encountering with you, interacting with you, And you're in a dynamic where you have to go to their office or meet them where they are at. It just awakens this deep sense within us of defensiveness. It awakens this deep sense within us of not being able to communicate correctly. It's a weird power dynamic. I think a lot of the time, as followers of Jesus, we kind of act like a principal in a lot of situations. We ask people to meet us on our standards, on our time, in our place that we're comfortable with. And then they come into our setting... They feel talked at. They feel communicated at, not talked with or walked with. And then they don't really want to come back. They don't really feel comfortable. 
in a church setting or a small group, whatever it may be. And then they just kind of, then you feel like, man, did, did it not work? Was the message not good? Was the worship not good enough? Was the playlist not good enough? And I think it just boils down that as people, we crave common ground. As people, we, we desire it to such a deep level. In psychology, there's actually a name for this. And it, it's called the caring theory. The caring theory. Not the Karen theory. Not going to get the manager called on you. It's the caring theory. I love that that was a meme. We can move on. See, it's called the caring effect or caring theory. And in this dynamic, between two individuals, before fear, before safety, what a person craves most is that they're cared for, that they're seen, that the greatest harm to somebody in a scenario of interaction is not that they may be in danger the first thing that comes to mind is that if they're seen and valued versus excluded. See, being excluded is a common feeling we've all faced, isn't it? Being edged out, not being allowed to have a say in the conversation, not being allowed to contribute. See, in a conversation, especially confrontation, confronting somebody about something that's hard to talk about, the priority of the scenario is never, do you feel safe, do you, but that they're cared for. Versus excluded. See, I see right now in our moment of time and, and just in the world we live in, I think with Christians, we're quick to be frustrated and we allow our frustration to get in the way of our love. I think we can learn from Paul. Because if, if you're understanding Paul's background and circumstance, and if you begin to dive deeper into what he is going through and experiencing, you begin to understand a little bit more about why he's reacting the way he's reacting, why he's able to go with these Epicureans and Stoics. What even is that? Well, at the time in philosophy, in, in the Greco-Roman world, there's two pools of thought. There's the Stoics and there's the Epicureans. The Epicureans summarize, believe that in all reality, if there are gods, they don't really care about our existence. We're just a bunch of atoms. And once we fizzle out, that kind of sums it up. We're done. Nah, good show. And it, since that is the extent of an existence, you might as well live it up while you can. You might as well have fun while you can. The pinnacle of any kind of form of life was pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure in any form or function that contributes most to your life and lifestyle. That was the Epicureans. They, they believed this. They were so caught up in doing and, and experiencing and hedonism. Then there's the Stoics. The Stoics, as the name mentions, you ever see somebody like, hey, you're being kind of Stoic. Probably comes from this word. Probably comes from this school of thought. Stoics believed that the divine was in everything. That the divine was interwoven. That the gods were interwoven in every single thing you did and every single ability and every single moment. And that the point of life was virtue, being as good as possible, and knowledge. So much so that if you could not attain those things, if you could not reach this pinnacle of what it means to be human, if you were not caught up in the divine, well, you can just kill yourself and just move on because it's just you're just going to be wrapped up in the divine anyway. That actually, in Shakespeare's book, Julius Caesar, Marcus Brutus makes a line that he says, the dagger is ready for me also when the people decide. This was the school of thought. It was either escapism through just, it doesn't really matter anyway, you're just going to be sucked up into all of what divinity is anyway, or it was escapism through pleasure, through experience. And here Paul is in this cultural moment. What is Paul's response? 
says, you idiots, if only you guys knew. You guys are just sucked up in your own lifestyle, you bunch of filthy sinners. You guys suck. What are you doing? What is this? What is Paul's response? Paul's response is to find common ground with them. They ask him to come back to the Areopagus. It was most likely Mars Hill, this place they would debate. And he's willing to. He's willing to step into their circumstance and their situation for the sake of communicating the gospel. See, I find that Paul's response is best. He, doesn't, he could have allowed frustrations and these people and their beliefs to get ahead of himself. He could have just looked at their wrongs before who they are. But he looks at the bigger situation, the bigger circumstance. I think as followers of Jesus, we need to learn from this. We need to learn how to find common ground with people that we may not disagree with. We need to learn how to find common ground with people even when what they have to say and the lifestyle they may live, we disagree with. I like what Rich Viotis said. He tweeted this. He's a pastor out of New York City, author. He says, it really is a curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're trying to convert to Jesus. It's hard to despise people when you begin to interact with them, when you begin to learn about who they are, when you begin to step into their scenario, step into their circumstance. I love this about Paul as well. They say, what is this babbler talking about as he's talking about Jesus? And that word they used was an insult. And I love that Paul doesn't let insults get in the way of his love. He says, you can insult me, you can spit on me, you can grow frustrated with me, but I'm going to communicate with you, and I'm going to sit here with you, and I'm going to love you. I think we can get insults get in the way of our love. Next thing is this. If we want to be able to communicate Christ-centered purpose with people who share a different value system than us, you have to, you have to understand how to speak the language. Let's keep reading to understand. It says this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. That's good news. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You know what someone's called when they speak three languages? Trilingual. Yeah, you can talk. It's okay. <laughs> you know what someone's called when they speak two languages? Bilingual. You know what someone's called when they speak one language? American. Ah, you beat me to it. American. I think if we're going to begin to invite people into how to think about purpose centered around Jesus, I think we need to begin to understand and speak their language. You ever been around people in a conversation? They're really intelligent. They're really smart. They can speak like more than one language, and you're just over here like an idiot. Like, I only learn English, and I tried taking it in school, and I didn't even do, get that good of a grade in it, so I'm really just having a hard time as it is. And you're over speaking two, three languages. 
And those two people are speaking to each other like, are they talking bad about me? Are they talking about how I smell? What is going on? You can never know unless you know the language, right? I think as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're expecting people to be a part of a conversation they do not even understand how to communicate in. I think we're expecting people on the outside looking in who don't understand it, who are ignorant of what is happening, and we get frustrated with them that they, that they can't keep up with the, the rate and the conversations that we are having. So I think if we need to begin to communicate the gospel to a lost world, to a lost city, we need to become involved in understanding of what is going on and what is being said in this lost world, in this lost city. Paul uses a lot of references they understood. Paul starts with talking about the world as they knew it, a creation. And then he says, hey, I've noticed and recognized what your city's like. I've paid attention to your culture. I've, I've become interested in, in what you're doing. And I loved Luke's note in the prior verses. It says, all these Athenians did all day long was study philosophy and the latest thinking and the latest concepts. Do you want to know what people in our city and in our culture and in our world are spending their time doing? Are we aware of it? Because if you're aware of it, you could become a part of it, not in a sinful manner, but in the manner of being able to be the light of Jesus and an influence in those circles. I'm not telling you to go step on down to the hookah lounge or the local strip club and say, hey, I'm evangelizing. Pastor Nick told me to do so. I'm just reaching. This is what people are doing. This is what I'm doing. No, I'm saying, are, are you aware of what matters to others? Because the world, as we know it, culture as we know it, non-believers, non-Christians, non-followers of Jesus, people, they, they see followers of Jesus as removed, as uninvolved, and not caring. And I love that Paul starts by complimenting them. A lot of scholars agree that Paul was not saying this to be sarcastic or biting. He's genuinely interested in what is going on in these people's lives. He's genuinely interested in what they care about. He's not being sarcastic or mean or snarky. He doesn't start with the insult. He starts by speaking in a language they can understand. See, this is just the way of Jesus. That the way you came to know about Jesus, Jesus probably spoke your language. He probably reached you. And got down to a level that you could understand. For me, it was through skateboarding. I found Jesus as a skateboarder, and he used skateboarders around me to communicate the gospel to me in terms I could understand and in ways I could comprehend. I didn't have theologians in their twill suits approaching me saying, do you understand the existential crisis of the replacement theory? Do you understand atonement, brother? No. I had people who looked like me, talked like me communicates to me Christ's love. I'm not saying we need to look like the world, not at all. Paul tells us later on that we need to be in the world, not of it, that you should be differentiated, you should look different. But I think we need to begin to at least understand what is going on maybe outside four walls of a church, maybe what's going on outside of four walls of a, maybe a small group. As people, we're attracted to what's similar. If you disagree with me, look at all your friends. All your friends probably dress like you. They probably put, pick up slang like you. They probably follow the same memes like you. That's why you send them to each other all day. We're attracted to what's similar. And if people were honest with themselves, when people are describing their significant other, their dream significant other, it's like, 
okay, I want them to be like into like my kind of Spotify playlist, and I want them to be able to have like a really nice job, and I want them to be able to kind of talk in a specific way, and I want them to be kind of cool, kind of trendy, go to a lot of similar concerts as me. It's like, homie, you just want to date yourself, don't you? People are honest. People just want to date who they are. We're attracted to what's similar. I think this is one of the greatest enemies to sharing the gospel and communicating purpose to a lost world is being homogenous, being all the same. I talked about this a little bit last week. A lot of people outside the church can't get into the church because the church is not relatable. I'm not talking about trendy. People don't care about screens. I got to break it to everybody. People aren't like, oh, my gosh. Are you going to collective tomorrow? I've never been to church in my life. I heard they have a screen on the stage. Oh, my gosh. Could you believe that stuff? There's a screen with an orange font behind it. Oh, my goodness. I'm there. I've never even tried Jesus out. I'm there. No, relatable in the sense of do I feel ostracized when I step into there? Do I, do I feel strange? Are people speaking my language? Are people talking like me? I find this is what Paul does, and he has such a good balance of finding a differentiation between just being outright sinful and just looking like another Athenian, another Stoic, another Epicurean, but then the balance of still being foundationed in who Jesus is. He still shares truth. He's not afraid to shy away from the truth, but he does it in love, and he's able to because he speaks the language. Here's the next thing. If you want to be able to communicate to people with a different value system than you about Christ-centered purpose, you have to, you have to, you have to. You have to give time for response. Let's keep reading. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God looked, overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with a justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. That rhymes, dang bars in the Bible. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Here's the reality. We have to give people time to respond to this great big thing we're communicating about called the gospel. See, the reality is this. Everybody, despite how they may live, what they may believe, is living out their own personal narrative of a gospel. See, the gospel is just translated as good news, the good news. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we understand this good news to be Jesus and his way of life, being a disciple to him. But the truth is, apart from Jesus, humanity, humans at a foundational level, we are designed to worship something, to focus on something. It's what gives you purpose. That's what gets you up in the morning, gets you alive and awake. See, we all believe our own narrative of the good news. It's communicated to us, maybe through social media, through the posts we like, the people we follow, that this is the good life. This is the good news. This is what purpose is. 
everybody, to one degree or another, is following some narrative for their life of an eventual outcome of the good life, the good news. This is what it means to truly be alive and to be human. You see, the greatest flaw is this. This is the greatest issue of anything apart from Jesus. Just like the Stoics and the Epicureans of that day, the one issue they could not solve with their form of the good news and the issue we cannot solve apart from Jesus when following some function of good news is the problem of evil. We can't make sense of a messed up world. When we follow something apart from who Jesus is, it's hard to make sense of what the point of any of this is. Because the reality is this, if life is just meant to be enjoyed, man, it's going to be a long, hard life. This is what Francis Spufford says in his book that I love. I love the title of this book. It says, Unapologetic, Why Christianity Can Make Surprisingly Emotional Sense. Read this. Listen to this. Enjoyment is one emotion. The only things in the world that are designed to elicit enjoyment and only enjoyment are products. And your life is not a product. The rest of the time, you'll be busy feeling hope, boredom, curiosity, anxiety, irritation, fear, joy, bewilderment, hate, tenderness, despair, relief, exhaustion, and the rest. It makes no more sense to say that you should feel the single emotion of enjoyment about your life than to say that you should spend it entirely in a state of fear or of hopping from foot to foot of anticipation. Life isn't just unanimous like that. To say that life is to be enjoyed or just enjoyed is like saying that mountains should only be summits and that all colors should be purple or that all plays should be by Shakespeare. This really is a bizarre category of error. The reality is this, my friends. When Paul presents the true gospel, the true way to live good in life and not just on this side of life but on the other side, he gives people time to respond. And if I'm being honest with you, this is one of the most convicting, almost frustrating verses as somebody whose job it is to be a professional Christian. I said it. That's my job. Be a professional Christian, okay? Each week, it's easy to stand up here and get up and communicate something, just preach my heart out, preach my soul out, and then still see in our city young adults returning to the same habits that are just draining them of life, seeing people I love, friends who were part of the church years ago, just totally walk away from Jesus, not care for anything concerning faith, just be so broken and upset from being hurt with the church. I think in the West, we really like instant, instant gratification. That's why we got dating apps. You don't like them, they got a big nose, swipe. You don't like them because they said something on your feed, you don't appreciate anymore, unfollow. Instantaneous echo chamber is what we appreciate here in our culture. And I think a lot of the time as followers of Jesus, and especially as a young adult, our population, 19 to 30, is the lowest attending church service people. Lowest affiliated with any form of Christianity. And I'm not even talking about people like, oh, I listen to the liturgist podcast and I walked away, but I go to church down by the river. No, 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 no. People who are the nuns. Biggest statistic for religious affiliation. I, re I affiliate with nothing. That's you and I's population. You and I's demographic. It can be frustrating. Wouldn't you agree? 
It can be frustrating showing up, watching your friends not care for any of this. They went through high school. They went to youth ministry. You had them in small group. It was life-changing. You've experienced who Jesus is together with that individual. And then they're just entirely turned off to all of it altogether. In our moment right now, it's really frustrating to see people's response to Jesus' words. I, it's really easy to see what Jesus said, I, I came to bring a sword. Feels like people are getting sliced in two. Feels like friendships, relationships with your mom or your dad getting severed in two. This is what Charles Taylor says in his book, A Secular Age. Belief in God is no longer unquestionable. There are alternatives. This will also likely mean it will be hard to sustain one's faith. There will be people who will feel bound to give it up, even though they mourn its loss. Man, that just breaks my heart. Man, that can just be so frustrating. But above all that, here's the good news about the good news. Sure, Christianity, we got our flaws. Christians, man, we're judgmental. Man, Christians, it's church. Church hurt. It's real. But here's the saving grace. Here's the reality above it all of why to even communicate about any of this. That reality is Jesus. It's Jesus. It, it's hope. It, it's something. This is the truth, my friends. What we have to offer as Christians, the only good thing is Jesus. It's hope. It's a solution to the problem of evil. That every other philosophy, every other school of thought is do good, get good. Is one day maybe you'll atomize into something else and life will suck less. Maybe if you just get buried in the ground deep enough, you'll be okay. Maybe if you do enough, God will like you. My friends, we don't need to communicate any further than who Jesus is that he offers hope that the very same man who is communicating these words 14 years earlier was killing Christians and God is using him. Isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't that just like Jesus to use somebody who's on a bender, who's the lowest they could possibly be a day before? They turn around and see Jesus' love and his goodness and they're changed forever. It doesn't matter what they did, it doesn't define them, it's who he is. It's the solution to the problem of evil. That one day he will make things right. One day he will make it so there are no more tears. I think we need to begin to wake up to that reality. There's church hurt. There's frustration. There's a lot going on. There's a lot being said. There's a lot of politics. It's like, man, just give me Jesus. That's what I want. I just need a person of Jesus to step into my life. Because he, when he steps into a circumstance, everything's different. It's hard to encounter him and leave the same. And so I want to challenge you. Have you lost sight of what your purpose is? I'm talking to followers of Jesus in this room. Have you lost sight of it? Have you begun to get caught up in all the nuance and the opinions and the frustrations and the angst? And some of it is deserved. Some of it we need to have a conversation. But have we lost sight of Jesus, man? That's all I have to say. Because the point of everything Paul does is not to be right, not to be relatable, but to communicate Jesus. And through it all, he gives time for a response. It's not immediate. It doesn't really tell us a timeline. It says eventually two people 
and many more come forward to know Jesus and impact their circumstance. I think we need to give people time to respond to who Jesus is. I think we need to find common ground. I think we need to begin there. I think we need to just begin with a simple interaction with others. And I think from there we need to speak their language. We need to not make people feel so ostracized and alienated. We need to be real. We need to be human. And then once we're there, we just got to give people some time. I think it's easy to lose sight of that. So if it's okay, we're going to jump back into worship. And I just want to pray over you. I want to pray over this room. Those of us, and you can feel free to stand, I just want to pray over you guys. I sense that many of us are tired. The age we live in, the frustrations we see, the secularism surrounding. Feels like everything's post-Christian, post-Christian. Feels frustrating to be a follower of Jesus. So I just want to pray over you as young adults. Just that you would fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this room of young adults. Thank you for who these young adults are. God, you see them in the midst of their circumstances. You see them in the midst of all the issues, of all the hate, of all the frustrations. God, you love them. Lord, I pray for my friends in this space who feel jaded. It feels like every day it's harder and harder to follow you. It's harder and harder to find purpose. Father, I lift them up to you, that you may just rekindle their hearts, that they may realize what it's all about, that they may fix their eyes on who you are, your hope, your grace, your restoration, that things are hard right now, but you're the only way. Everything else leads frustration. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to stop becoming fixated with side conversations, side priorities that are apart from you and your grace and your love. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, y'all. And hey, how good we can